The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 372. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those social media accounts, of course, at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com is always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History. And, of course, you can purchase one of my classes there. I've got 12. You're going to want to get one of those classes. They're awesome. You help support the show, and you get a great class. And if you do enroll, free of charge again, you do get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses, and I will have another class coming out very soon, within the next few days. So you're going to want to do that. You want to get on that because if you're a member... You're going to get the best coupon when it comes out. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep these lights on. Help keep the podcast going. You get a Brian McClanahan book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books. I do have a new book out, Southern Scribblings, 60 Essays and Defenses of Southern Tradition. I've got a number of other books as well. So if you want my autograph, get those book plates. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can get your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And of course... Rate this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Share it around on social media. Let people know you like the Brian McClanahan Show and you're thinking locally and acting locally because that's how we're going to save America. That's how we're really going to make America great again. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the day. If you didn't know it, today is the 150th anniversary. It's October 12th, 2020, the 150th anniversary of the death of Robert E. Lee. So I thought it would be fitting to talk about Lee today uh, a while back, I did a, an, a review of a book, a very popular book on Robert E. Lee, Reading the Man, and I ripped it apart because it needed it. There were some parts that were good in that book, and, but much of it wasn't. But I want to focus on an interview that Lee gave in April of 1865, April 21st, 1865. He was interviewed by a correspondent from the New York Herald. So this is I mean, very shortly... After the end of the war, we're talking about three weeks, Lincoln had just been assassinated. Uh, we know that Lee had surrendered at Appomattox just about three weeks before this. We know that the southern armies were still, uh, at least in the field, in the Western Theater, and that did not end until May of 1865. So when Lee gave this interview, the war was still ongoing at this point. It wasn't over yet. Uh, of course, he had surrendered, but... And he had surrendered the Army of Virginia. And what he said was actually to that effect. Well, I've surrendered, but the war is not over. And when it does end, he said some interesting things. So Lee gives his opinion on a variety of topics. Number one, secession, state power, slavery, uh, Lincoln's assassination. He talks about a number of things. And the reason I want to bring this up today is because, of course, we just saw in Portland, Oregon, yesterday, a statue of Abraham Lincoln was toppled. A statue of George Washington was toppled. You see, it's not about Lee, it's about Western civilization. And in many ways, Lee embodied the spirit of Western civilization in America better than most. This is why, into the 20th century, you had all kinds of remembrances for Robert E. Lee. 
in the South, but Lee considered himself an American, and so did most other Americans. Even the vindictive ones began to start seeing Lee in a different light once the war was over. Lee wanted to resume the Union. Lee wanted to be part of the United States. In fact, he said, look, we, we were always American. We were fighting over something that was dear to the people of the South and was as American as anything else. And that, of course, was state power. So I want to read this interview. I think you'll find it enlightening. And there's a reason why Robert E. Lee was considered one of the greatest Americans uh, in American history for a long period of time. It's only been recently that he's come under attack. And he's come under attack because of this doctrine of political correctness the social justice warrior influence in America. Anything before 1970 is bad. You have to get rid of it. It's why I included Robert E. Lee in my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes, because he was. He was a real American hero, and, and anyone with half a brain would recognize him as that. So this interview conducted April 21st, 1865. Now, this is not word for word, but it's from the interviewer, he, he wrote an essay about this. His last name is Cook. Wrote an essay about this, and this is what he said Lee told him. He said, in order, if possible, to get some clear light for the solution of the new complications growing out of the murder of President Lincoln, I yesterday sought and obtained an interview that, with that distinguished soldier and leader of the rebel armies, General Robert E. Lee, and was permitted to draw out his views on the very important questions suggested. It is proper to say that my reception was everything that could be expected from a gentleman who has always been considered a type of the once famous chivalry, and I had almost said notably of Virginia. Now, that's an interesting statement. Lee was a gentleman. He is a type of the once famous chivalry of Virginia. He is a Virginian. He was the embodiment of Virginia cavalier culture. Now, according to Pryor, in reading the man, he's just middle class, he's nobody. That's not what people said at the time. You see, this is the, this is the sad part of modern revisionism with Robert E. Lee. The writer continues, Pen and ink sketches of General Lee have been so numerously made of late by newspaper writers that any attempt at this time by me in that direction would be a work of difficulty. I may say simply that the firm step, the clear voice, the bright beaming countenance, the quick intelligence, the upright form, and the active manner of the general very strongly belial the portraitures of him which are, which are so common. All the vigor and animation and ability of ripe manhood are prominently conspicuous in his bearing. His venerable white hair and his beard simply inspire respect for the mature ideas and deliberate expressions that, that came from, his, from this conspicuous rebel leader but in no wise convey an impression of decay or old age. Now remember, Lee dies five years later. He only lives five years after this. And, um, I mean, he was already facing some health issues, but he's still considered to be a vigorous and upright man. Now I think that, of course, the war, and the end of the war, wore him down. And he died, I think, in many ways of a broken heart. It was certainly embarrassing to me on introducing the object of my visit to say that I intended to lay his political views before the public, as his military career had already been. His reply, I am a paroled prisoner, at once appealed to my sympathy. A frank, generous man, how far may I properly question him without touching upon his views of honor in reference to his parole? 
But he added, quote, I have never been a politician and know little of political leaders. I am a soldier. I felt easier. I assured him that I had no desire to offend his sensibility or tempt him to violate any presumable obligation under his parole, but that being prominently identified with the rebellion, his views on the questions arising out of the rebellion would be of great interest at the present moment and doubtless of great importance and influence in the settlement of the troubles agitating the country. And with this view, only I called upon him. He replied that the prominence he held was unsought by himself and distasteful to him, that he preferred retirement and seclusion, but was ready to make any sacrifice or perform any honorable act that would tend to the re restoration of peace and tranquility to the country. Stop there. Lee, like Washington, didn't look for the spotlight, but he was given that. And now he was ready to put down the sword and get back to the work of peace and tranquility. He wanted to go back home. He wanted to retire. He wanted to go to Arlington, which was never going to happen again because the general government confiscated it. Illegally, by the way, confiscated it. And that also broke his heart, broke his wife's heart in particular. The writer says it will not be possible to relate the extended conversation that ensued with any approach to exactness, no notes having been taken, and it will not, therefore, be attempted. But I will confine myself to a record of the views expressed by General Lee on several prominent topics, as I understood him to express himself. The general's attention was directed to his written and spoken determination to draw his sword in defense only of his native state, and the inquiry was raised as to what he considered the defense of Virginia and what degree of deliberation he had given to that expression. He stated that as a firm and honest believer in the doctrine of states' rights, he had considered his allegiance due primarily to his state in which he was born and where he had always resided. And although he was not an advocate of secession at the outset when Virginia seceded, he honestly believed it his duty to abide by her fortune. He opposed secession to the last, foreseeing the ruin it was to sure to entail. But when the state withdrew from the Union, he had no recourse in his view of honor and patriotism. But to abide her fortunes, he went with her, intending to remain a private citizen. When he resigned his commission in the United States Army, he had no intention of taking up arms in any other service, and least of all in the service antagonistic to the United States. His state, however, called for him, and Entertaining the fixed principles he did of state sovereignty, he had no alternative but to accept the service to which he was called. When he made, the, when he made use of the declarations that had been so extensively quoted of late, he had accepted only a commission from Virginia. Subsequently, when Virginia attached herself to the Southern Confederacy, the same political imp impressions impelled him to follow her. When he accepted service under the rebel government, he did so on the principle that he was defending his native state. And yet... By the act of accepting such service, he was bound to honor to serve in any part of the Confederacy he might be called without reference to state lines, and his recollection with his former Laval, if any were necessary, was found in the fact that Virginia, standing or falling with the other southern states, in defending them all, he was defending the one to which he considered his allegiance primarily due. Now, this is interesting because Lee's saying, look, I was defending Virginia the entire time, but when Virginia joined the Confederacy, I had to go and fight for the Confederacy as well. So, this is something that Alan Gelzo often, oh, well, he was a traitor because he, he knew what he was doing. He knew getting it. He knew he even questioned whether he was a traitor there. Um, I don't think Lee considered himself that. He's standing here from the beginning saying, look, I was defending Virginia. I believed in states' rights. Virginia seceded, and I left. And this is where Pryor does point out that Lee was consistent in this regard. 
throughout his time in the 1860s. As to the effect of his surrender, he was free to say it was a severe blow to the South, but not a crushing blow. It was of military, not political significance. I asked, was not the surrender a virtual surrender of the doctrine of states' rights? By no means, the general replied. When the South shall be wholly subdued, there will then undeniably be a surrender of that doctrine. But the surrender of a single army is simply a military necessity. The Army of Northern Virginia was surrendered because further resistance on its part would only entail a useless sacrifice of life. But that army was merely a part of the force of the South. When the South shall be forced to surrender all of its forces, and returns to the Union. And indisputably, by that act, surrenders its favorite doctrine of secession. That principle will be settled by military power. Now this is, Lee is saying here, military power settled it all. And this was something that generally people had believed. That secession was settled by the sword. But is any political or legal doctrine ever settled by the sword? Or does it have to be settled in some other way? Is the question. Lee certainly thought it was. And Lee is certainly looking at this, as he says later, as an, as an American, not as a citizen of the Confederacy. On this question of state sovereignty, the general contends that there exists a legitimate casus belli. In the conversation that formed the organic law of the land, the question of defining the relative powers of the states and their relation to the general government was raised, but after much discussion was dropped and left unsettled. It has remained so unsettled until the present time. The war is destined to set it at rest. Again, he's saying that this is settling it through violent arms, a violent means. I don't think so. It is unfortunate that it was not settled at the outset, but as it was not settled then and had to be settled at some time, then the war was raised on this issue cannot be considered treason. If the South is forced to submission in this context, it, it, it of course, can only be looked upon as a triumph of federal power over state rights and the forced annihilation of the latter. So he's saying here it can't be treason because we've been talking about this for years, and so this is what we had to do. And the war was raised on the issue of secession, of state power to leave the Union. Lee's not inventing anything here. He's saying this is what it was all about. With reference to the war, in the abstract, the general declared it, has his, it is his honest belief that peace was practicable two years ago and has been practicable from that time to the present day, whenever the general government should see fit to seek it, giving any reasonable chance for the country to escape the consequences which the exacerbated North seemed determined to impose. The South has, during all this time, been ready and anxious for peace. They have been looking for some word or expression of compromise or conciliation from the North upon which they might base a return to the Union. They were not prepared, nor are they yet, to come and beg for terms, their own political views being considered. Now, this is an interesting point. Was the South willing to agree to terms? I think Davis was pretty firm at one point, said, no, it's, it has to be independence. It has to be recognition of independence. That's the only way we're going to stop fighting, if you recognize our independence. And, of course, the Lincoln administration was unwilling to do that. So there we are. He says, the question of slavery did not lie in the way at all. The best men of the South have long been anxious to do away with the institution, and we're quite willing to, today to see it abolished. They consider slavery forever dead. But with them, in relation to the subject, the question has ever been, what will you do with the freed people? This is the serious question today and one that cannot be winked at. It must be met practically and treated intelligently. The Negroes must be disposed of, and if their disposition can be marked out, the matter of freeing them is at once settled. 
But unless some humane course is adopted based on wisdom and Christian principles, you do a gross wrong and injustice to the whole Negro race in setting them free. It is only this consideration that has led the wisdom, intelligence, and Christianity of the South to support and defend the institution up to this time. Now, this was not something that was unusual for someone to say in the 19th century. Lincoln, to the day he died, was pursuing colonization because he wasn't certain that freed slaves could live and assimilate in the South as political and social equals. It wasn't going to happen. And Lincoln himself did not think it should happen. Lincoln, of course, is on record in 1858 saying this was going to be a problem. And there were many people, North and South, who considered that to be a major issue and a major problem. Now, we know that Republicans wanted to use slaves as pawns in this political game, and that was votes. And so you get them voting, you get them voting Republican, and you win elections. Lee was seeing it as, and many others are seeing it as, a problem of Christian humanity, he says. What are we going to do with them? Do you just elevate them to immediate citizens? Do you just give them political and social rights? Is this even going to work? And he understood the reality of the time was that it probably wouldn't at that time. It, it would take time. So his idea was, I think, and he's kind of alluding to the fact that they had to be moved somewhere or something had to happen with them. So again, this is nothing different than what Lincoln had been doing up until the day he died. The conversation then turned to other channels and finally touched upon the prospects of peace. And here a very noticeable form of expression was used by the general. In speaking of the probable course of the administration toward the South, the general remarked that if we do so-and-so, I immediately directly called his attention to the expression and sought an explanation of it in the sense in which he used the pronoun we, but obtained none other than a marked repetition of it. It was noticeable throughout the entire interview that in no single instance did he speak of the Southern Confederacy, nor of the Yankees, nor the rebels. He frequently alluded to the country and expressed most earnestly his solicitude for its rest restoration to peace and tranquility, cautiously avoiding any expression that would imply the possibility of its disintegration. Throughout all the conversation, man he manifested an earnest desire that such counsel should prevail and such policies be pursued as would conduce to an open, immediate peace. Implying in his remarks that peace was now at our option, he was particular to say that should arbitrary or vindictive or revengeful policies be adopted, the end was not yet. So don't punish the South. Let's have peace. Let's resume the Union. This is what Lincoln had promised to do. I think Lee was certainly in line with that idea. He says, there yet remained a great deal of vitality and strength in the South. There were undeveloped resources and hitherto unavailable sources of strength, which, could, which harsh measure on your part would call into action, and that the South would protract the struggle for an indefinite period. We might, it was true, destroy all that remained of the country east of the Mississippi River by lavish expenditure of men and means, but then we would be required to fight on the other side of the river. And after subduing them there, we would be compelled to follow them into Mexico, and thus the struggle would be prolonged till the whole country would be impoverished and ruined, and this we would be compelled to do if extermination, confiscation, and general annihilation and destruction are to be our policy. For if people are to be destroyed, they will sell their lives as dearly as possible. Well, we know the South wasn't willing to do this, and I think this is why they gave up. Uh, but Lee was certainly in April of 1865, somewhat optimistic that that would be the case. The assassination of the president was spoken of. The general considered this event in itself one of the most deplorable that could have, been, that could have occurred. As a crime, it was 
unexampled and beyond execration. It was a crime that no good man could approve from any conceivable motive. Undoubtedly, the effort would be made to fasten the responsibility of it upon the South. But from his intimate acquaintance with the leading men of the South, he was confident that it was not one of them who would sanction or approve it. The scheme was wholly unknown in the South before its execution. It would never have received the slightest encouragement had it been known, but on the contrary, the most severe execration. Now, we know Davis, uh, there was a hit on Davis at one point, and uh, Lincoln didn't uh, necessarily denounce it. But this was something that, I mean, Lee considered to be an an abhorrence. You You don't assassinate the president. I called the general's attention at this point to a notice that had been printed in the northern newspapers purporting to have been taken from a paper published in the interior of the South promising the sum of $1 million to undertake the assassination of the president and his cabinet. The general affirmed that he had never seen or heard of such a proposition, nor did he believe that it had ever been printed in the South, though if it had, it had been, permit- it had been permitted merely at the- as the whim of some crazy person that could possibly amount to nothing. Such a crime was an anomaly in the history of our country, and we had yet before its uh, perpetration to learn that it was possible of either earnest conception or actual execution. It was a most singular and remarkable expression to escape the lips of such a man as General Lee that the South is never more than half in earnest in this war. I cannot attempt to translate this remark or elucidate it. Its utterance conveyed to me the impression that the South was most heartily sick of the war and anxious to get back into the Union and to peace. The general added that they went off after political leader, leaders in a moment of passion and under the excitement of fancied wrongs, honestly believing that they were entering a struggle for an inalienable right and a fundamental principle of, the, of their political creed. A man should not be judged harshly for contending what, for that which he honestly believes to be right. Such was the position of the vast majority of the Southern people now. And now that they are defeated, they consider that they have lost everything that is worth contending in the government, for in the government, they have sacrificed home, friends, property, health, all the issue. Men do not make such sacrifices for nothing. They have made the sacrifice from honest convictions. And now that they have lost in their issue, they feel that they have no interest left in this country. They have made the sacrifice from honest convictions. Sacrifice their home, friends, property, health. Men do not make such sacrifices for nothing. They made it for their convictions. It is the opinion of General Lee that unless moderation and liberality be exercised towards them, the country will lose its best people. Already, he says, they are seeking to expatriate themselves and by numerous schemes are stated to go to Mexico, to Brazil, to Canada, to France, or elsewhere. He is called upon frequently to discountenance and suppress such undertakings. The country needs these young men. There is bone and sinew, its intelligence and enterprise, its hope for the future, and wisdom demands that no effort be spared to keep them in the country and pacify them. It was most, a most noticeable, noticeable feature of the conversation that General Lee, strange as it may appear, talked throughout as a citizen of the United States. He seemed to plant himself on the national platform and take his observations from that standpoint. He talked calmly, deliberately, earnestly, but with no show of interest other or, or different from what might be expected from an honest believer in his peculiar opinions. The conversation, which had been greatly protracted so much that I became uneasy for fear of trespassing on time that I had no right to claim, terminated with some allusions to the terms of peace. Here there was perhaps mutually and properly more reticence than on any other topic, but it was plain from what transpired that the only question in the way of immediate peace was the treatment to be accorded to the vanquished. Everything else was, by implication, seems to be surrendered. 
Slavery, states' rights, the doctrine of secession, whatever else of political party policy, I'm sorry, may be involved in the strife is abandoned. The only barrier to an immediate and universal suspension of hostilities and return to the Union being the treatment the national authorities may promise to those who have been resisting its power and paramount authority. It is proper to say that this was not so stated by General Lee, but simply an inference from the conversation that took place on the, on the topic. On the contrary, the general seemed, very, general seemed very cautious in regard to terms. In order to get at his views, if possible, I, su- I suggested the conservative sentiment of the North, which proposed a general amnesty to all soldiers and military officers, but that the political leaders of the South had be held to a strict accountability. Would that be just, he asked. What has Mr. Davis done more than any other Southerner that, she be, that he should be punished? It is true that he has occupied a prominent position as an agent of the whole people, but that has made him no less a rebel than the rest. His acts were the acts of the whole people, and the acts of the whole people were his acts. He was not accountable for the commencement of the struggle. On the contrary, he was one of the last to give his adherence to the secession movement, having strenuously opposed it from the outset and, and portrayed its ruins, ruinous consequences in his speeches and his writings. Why, therefore, should he suffer more than others? Of course, it was not my province to discuss those questions, and as this, this illustrated disclosed the bent of the general's mind, it was all that I desired to know. So here is Lee defending Jefferson Davis, saying, look, why should Jefferson Davis suffer? I mean, here's a guy. I mean, look, he was just an agent of the people. But Lincoln said that government of the people, by the people, for the people was perishing. But Lee is saying, no, we had government of the people in the South. In taking leave of the general, I took occasion to say that he was greatly respected by a very large body of the good men of the North, and that as a soldier, he was universally admired, and that it was earnestly hoped that he would yet lead an army of the United States troops in the enforcement of the Monroe Doctrine. He thanked me for the expression of Northern sentiments toward himself, but as for more fighting, he felt he was getting too old, and his only desire now being to, being to be permitted to retire to private life and end his days in seclusion. It was, I thought, an evidence of painful sadness at heart that promoted the added expression that would have been placed had his life been taken in any of the numerous battlefields on which he had fought during the war. While talking on the subject of the abolition of slavery, I remarked that it had lately been charged in some of the newspapers of the North that the Custis slaves, some 200 in number, who had been left in General Lee's custody for emancipation had not been emancipated. The general said this was a mistake. As executor of the will, he was required to emancipate these slaves at a certain time. That time had not yet arrived when the war broke out. It did arrive one or two after one or two years afterwards. At that time, he could not get the courts of the of the country in which Arlington is located to take out the emancipation papers as prescribed by law. But he did take out papers from the Supreme Court of the state in this city, liberating them all, and they are so recorded in the records of the court. He sent word of their freedom to the Negroes of Arlington and. The necessary papers were sent to all to those at the White House and to all others that could be reached, and they were all thus liberated, together with a number who were either the General's or Mrs. Lee's private property. So, look, this is a wonderful letter. It's a wonderful letter of reconciliation because Lee is getting to that. He's saying, look, what we need is reconciliation. I want to have a situation where we are respected, where you know, somehow we can get back in the Union, get back to work. I mean, now that Lincoln's gone, how's this going to work? But certainly Lee was looking for reconciliation. You can say, of course he's going to, because he's on the losing side. But regardless, this was the spirit of the time for many people. We're only three weeks after the war. Lee could have been bitter. He could have been just completely irritated with the situation, but he wasn't. 
And because he wasn't, he's speaking this reconciliationist message. And this reporter, Cook, from the New York Herald, is bowled over by it and says, you know, this guy's a gentleman. This guy means what he says. I'm really in favor of this reconciliation message. So instead of tearing down statues to Robert E. Lee, we should leave these up as monuments to one of the great characters of American history, Robert E. Lee. All right. That's all I got for you today. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.